Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Among the natural laws that make California's landscape what it is, there's none more important than this. The snow that falls in the Sierras in the winter becomes the water flowing into the Great Central Valley. That water recharges the whole aquatic battery of the state. Too little snow, as we've had for many years recently, means that rivers are anemic, the reservoirs empty out, and farmers and fish don't get what they need to grow. But What about when there's too much water? Is that even possible anymore? We know that there's an incredible near-record snowpack in different parts of the Sierras, but will that mean record flows through the rivers of our state? Everything you need to know about the Big Melt's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are a lot of ways to describe this year's Sierra snowpack. Whether it's a true record's a bit of a debate, depending, you know, how you measure and where and all that. But let's be clear. It is deep. In April, some people noted it was double the recent average. Others went with the deepest in 70 years, and it didn't land everywhere equally. While the northern Sierra had a very solid year, you know, 200% plus of normal, pretending we still know what normal is. The southern Sierra are at more than 3x that which we call normal. And now things are starting to warm up. So what's going to happen? Let's bring in some guests to help us make sense of it. First up, we've got Haley Smith, a reporter focusing on extreme weather with the Los Angeles Times. Welcome, Haley. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We've got Noah Diffenbaugh, a Stanford University Doer School of Sustainability. His research focuses on climate and earth system dynamics. Welcome, Noah. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we have Nicholas Pinter, Chair in Applied Geosciences in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and Associate Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences uh, at UC Davis. Welcome, Nicholas. Good morning, Alexis. Um, Haley, let's start with you. Um, What is this phenomenon that people have been calling the Big Melt? Sure. So there's a a number of factors at play here when we're talking about the big melt. And the first is what you just mentioned, this record-setting snowpack in the southern Sierra Nevada peaked somewhere around 300% of normal this year. Um, To put that number in context, Mammoth Mountain Ski Resort actually reported a season total of more than 700 inches of snow. And most of that snow is still up there. And the concern is that as temperatures start to warm, it's going to melt, it's going to potentially swell rivers and creeks and tributaries, potentially causing flooding as it makes its way downhill. And the primary area where this is a concern is the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley, um, including the 
areas around Kern, Tulare, Kings, and Fresno counties, which basically sits like a big bowl or a bathtub in the center of the state at the foot of those mountains without really anywhere to drain. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a bit because it is, it's got a different situation and, and things are already happening there that uh, are, are problematic. Um, but yeah. Nicholas Pinter, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see, like, does the big melt, it makes it seem like it's something that's going to be scary, like the big one. Is that how you see it? So I think there's certainly reason for awareness and, and preparedness. Uh, there is the potential for flooding. There's a lot of water up there. There's most of an estimated 30 million acre feet of water still sitting as ice and snow in the Sierras. But I think it's not at all clear that it's going to come rushing down when, you know, immediately upon when the water, the weather turns warm. Huh. Noah Diffenbaugh, maybe you can talk to us about what are the different scenarios in which this water begins to melt? Like, if it's not all going to come rushing down the second, you know, it gets sunny in San Francisco, uh, then what happens? Well, I suppose the ideal scenario is that it uh, melts gradually and, uh, you know, replenishes, um, you know, the 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 soils and uh, the, the groundwater and, uh, you know, the the reservoirs downstream all in a gradual um manner mm -hmm. uh that would be the ideal uh <laughs> and uh you know we certainly um you know like this last week where we had a spring heat wave uh you know in recent years we've had um very hot early season weather in terms of you know the the, the warm season and in fact in previous years has have been seeing record or near record pace of of, of mm. snowmelt. Uh -huh. um, so I think the you know it remains to be seen. Uh, it's not just uh, how hot it gets, but uh, that obviously when we're talking about frozen water, that obviously plays a role. Yeah. Um, Noah, if one ideal is basically gradual melt, and you know. Uh, no, nothing extreme happens. What's on the other end? Like, what would be something where if people are kind of monitoring things, they see a particular kind of weather system coming, that would be a, a cause for concern? Well, I think if we get sustained hot weather with, you know, you know, sunny conditions and um, really rapid snow melt, then the question really becomes, you know, how quickly does that water run off and in, you know, in, in which basins and, and how does that then intersect with our managed infrastructure, our, our really sophisticated water system. And, and certainly, you know, we've been seeing uh, reservoirs being emptied out in preparation for this melting. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there is, there's certainly flood risk both in, you know, the mountain areas as well as, you know, where we're already seeing, um, you know, the flooding in, in the Central Valley, for instance. So, you know, the, the other end of the, of the spectrum, the other end of possibilities is really rapid melting that, uh, you know, exceeds the capacity, both the natural capacity for, for infiltration into uh, the soils and, and groundwater, as well as the capacity of our built infrastructure. 
Haley Smith, as you've been, you know, reporting for the LA Times on extreme weather, I assume you've been talking with meteorologists, climatologists about, you know, how to weight these scenarios, right? I mean, it could be that, you know, we look back in October and we say, hey, you know, it it went well in in a lot of ways. Um, how are folks thinking about, you know, what the different possibilities are here? Uh, yeah, I think, unfortunately, there is a little bit of a wait and see aspect to this, and a lot of it will depend on temperatures and, and how they develop. One thing that's interesting, and we saw it with the heat wave or the mini heat wave over the weekend, is that nighttime temperatures were also warmer than normal. And so what that means is that the snow wouldn't even have a chance to refreeze overnight. So we're potentially looking at either a melt or a trickle that's going on for 24 hours a day. Um, so that's a factor. And then as Noah mentioned, there's also, um, you know, evidence that snow melt is increasing and, and happening more rapidly. Some of these areas might be melting over or around wildfire burn scars, um, which can also accelerate the rate of the melt because um, they tend to be kind of waxy and, and water repellent mm. in those burn areas. So there's a lot of factors here. I think as communicators, we want to be able to tell the public, here's where it's going to flood at this day on this time you know, be ready. But unfortunately, it's kind of a day by day, maybe a week by week thing, depending on the forecast. Mm. We're talking about the big melt and how prepared California is for an influx of water. This summer, we're joined by Haley Smith, the reporter focusing on extreme weather with the Los Angeles Times. Dr. Noah Diffenbaugh, professor and senior fellow at Stanford University School of Sustainability, where his research focuses on climate and earth systems uh, dynamics. Nicholas Pinter, Chair in Applied Geosciences in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and Associate Director for the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. We want to hear from you. I mean, what are your questions about how California's snowpack will melt this year? I mean, do you live in an area that's already worried about flooding? And we know that some rivers uh, are already running fast and cold. So have these conditions kind of impacted the way that you normally do, you know, outdoor recreation? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Nicholas, uh, I was hoping you could talk us through a little bit about we we know that there are plans in place to deal with the Sierra snowpack. It's not as if we never deal with you know snow in the mountains. So where do you see our planning feeling solid and where might it need uh, to be rethought based on the kind of conditions that we have right now? Yeah, so California lives with the challenge of trying to prepare for floods during a majority of years of drought, right? So we've sort of forgotten a little bit what a wet winter looks like and uh, these plans are getting dusted off. And so far, except for localized impacts, this winter has played out pretty well. Um, what's jumping to the headlines, of course, is Tulare Lake. We should probably talk about that. That's been sort of the poster child for flooding this spring. Um, we need these occasional wake up calls to remind us that we don't live in perpetual doubt, that California hydrology is mostly characterized by variability, wet versus dry years alternating back and forth, and we need to prepare for both. Let's talk a little bit about Tulare Lake. I mean, this is a, a place that there are towns, there are farms, there's this whole 
system of levees. But like fundamentally, that wants to be a lake, right? I mean, it was a lake for, you know, the long period of time before, um, you know, the, the levee system there. So, right. So, so naturally, this was a lake bed. Uh, I've been quoted as saying it's a, it's a bathtub with no drain. It's a, it's a low spot in the southern San Joaquin Valley. And it's even since drainage and, and uh, engineering measures, it continues to be a seasonal lake that uh, multiple years, 1938, 55, 69, 97, 83 in particular, it refills when there's a heavy Sierra snowpack that drains into it. It's doing that again this year, dramatically so. But my understanding too, speaking to the planning issue, is that the flood planning there has not is not as comprehensive as it is, say, on the Sacramento side, uh, north here of the Bay here. So, I mean, both here in Sacramento and, and elsewhere, including Tulare Lake, there have been engineering measures to sort of push the water where we want it um, Tulare Lake, those are incomplete measures. So, so there was the recognition that this area of topography would refill during a winter like this. And, you know, some of the impacts are, are agricultural. So farmers in that area uh, understood that they'd get a crop in, they'd be able to, to, to farm the area nine years out of 10 and the 10th year it would get wet again. I'm a little surprised how much infrastructure has grown up there. Uh -huh. um, uh, how many farms and, and uh, how many towns and, and residents are, are within the same area. That's another kind of problem. Yeah. We're talking about how prepared California is for the influx of water this summer from the Sierra Snowpack. Joined by Nicholas Pinter, Associate Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. Haley Smith, reporter with the LA Times. And Noah Diffenbaugh, a professor and senior fellow at Stanford University. Uh, Door School of Sustainability. Going to start taking some of your questions after the break about California snowpack and the big melt. The number's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum, when you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking Big Mount, how prepared California is for the influx of water coming this season down from the Sierra snowpack. Joined by uh, Stanford's Noah Diffenbaugh, uh, the L.A. Times' Haley Smith, and UC Davis's Nicholas Pinter. Um, let's get to the phones. Let's take our first caller here. Uh, Daniel in Richmond, welcome. Good morning. Just wanted to find out a little more about Lake Tulare and uh, if it's something that could be kind of uh, – 
uh, an annual thing for the world. And then also if there's places higher up that might be a little cooler where they could um, have some other reservoirs without disturbing the land. And finally, mosquitoes uh, are a big deal. I know in the 1800s they said it was like infested with uh, mosquitoes. Will there be a lot of mosquitoes uh, in California this year? Wow, that's interesting. Uh, Daniel, um, thank you for those. Let's let's take the Tulare uh, Lake one first. Um, Nicholas Pinter, I mean, right before the break, you were sort of mentioning, you know, there's a bunch of farms there because there's farms, there's farm workers, so there's farm worker towns there. Um, there are roads and infrastructure and a whole levee system and a broken political uh, environment down there. So what what can happen now, um, because you have a few really large landowners down there who seem to, um, I don't think it's, they want to have their land turn into a lake, but what should happen? So, I mean, what's playing out, really, we have we have historical examples of, that, of this. So, uh, right now, 2023 is looking a lot like 1983. So, we're currently something in the neighborhood of 100 square miles of the old lake bed refilled with water. In 1983, it was about 130 square miles. So it, it's, it may go there, it may go bigger than that. Um, and again, we were talking about the distinction between agriculture on the old lake beds. If you can get a crop in nine years out of 10, we should probably call that a win. But uh, residential occupation, large scale infrastructure, that should really be steered elsewhere. Looking at Tulare Lake, I'm reminded a lot about uh, the Houston area, Hurricane Harvey mm-hmm. in 2017 where the city woke up that it had built something like 5,000 homes inside the flood storage pool of its own reservoirs. I think we're having a little bit of the same wake-up call down there now. Mm-hmm. Noah, how, do you see this in the in the same way? Yeah, I think the caller's question about, you know, will this be an every-year occurrence, uh, you know, I, I think as Nichols was saying, you know, what we're seeing now is really consistent with, uh, you know, the, what, what we understand about the way that climate is changing in California. If we look at the last decade, we've had two historic record-setting droughts, and each has been punctuated by extremely wet conditions. You know, you listeners probably remember the Oroville Dam crisis uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, five or six years ago that that really, you know, caused a large-scale evacuation and kind of just escaped a real true disaster there. Yeah, and was at the you know was at the end of 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 what at the time was our most extreme drought on record, and now you know that's been followed by another uh, record-setting drought that then is you know now is being you know punctuated by these extremely wet conditions we're having this year, and so uh, you know I the the climate is not changing in a direction that would suggest uh, you know this Tulare Lake filling. On an annual basis, rather the climate's changing in a in a direction of you know protracted hot, dry conditions that be, because of the long term warming produce uh, greater likelihood of of more severe drought, but still punctuated by uh, the 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 you know the, the atmospheric and ocean configurations that give us wet years with a boost from you know more. Uh, water vapor in the atmosphere, uh, warming atmospheric rivers, you know, all of which come together to to give us uh, even more intense uh, precipitation and runoff during those wet years. Yeah. Haley Smith, uh, have you, as you've been reporting and reading about, you know, the the problems that are going on in Tulare, is anyone down there talking about a fundamentally different kind of way of 
managing things down there? <sighs> That's a great question. And I was actually just up there last week and it's, it's a pretty surreal site. I mean, there's, there's thousands of acres underwater just a few minutes from downtown in Corcoran. Um, and some of it is as deep as 30 feet. I mean, people are Jeez. boating right now across what only four months ago was fields of cotton and, and nuts and tomatoes and crops like that. So it's a pretty remarkable thing to see. Um, so certainly I think if you're a resident, of that area, it's going to make you start to think differently about your future there. And I even spoke to a farmer who said, yeah, it, it does make me rethink my future in California. He's expecting a pretty big economic hit from the crop loss this year. Um, and the other thing is, thinking back to the last time uh, we saw a similar flood, which um, Nicholas mentioned back in 1983, it took about two years for all of that uh, water to dry out. So these people that are already underwater are, are in it for the long haul. Um, so to answer your question, I think there's a few things that are coming up. Um, and the caller mentioned maybe more reservoirs and dams, but I actually think more pressing would be fortifying the levee down there. There's there's a few critical levees um, and there's concern that as the snow melt comes down, they could erode or give way. So levee fortification is one thing. And the other is uh, creating more opportunities for groundwater recharge and just letting some of this valuable water seep into the ground and, and refill our, our aquifers. Um, so that would probably be more of the, the structural or infrastructure changes we might want to focus on as opposed to putting up more dams and, and reservoirs. Yeah. You know, Nicholas Pinter, another uh, commenter, Scott writes, is it fair to assume that Tulare Lake won't be left alone? It is surrounded by thirsty farms. Why wouldn't it get sucked dry like everything else? Uh, I'd be surprised if the area industries would respect it uh, enough to let it live. I mean, there's a kind of normative question in there, which is, um, should that land be fallowed? And should those, I mean, you know, it, it's difficult to say, you know, people should leave their homes in these towns. Um, or people should leave their their farms. Um, but how could there be a process to, for people to plan better what's going to happen in that area? So right. It sounds like your question may relate to the suggestion that Tulare Lake be allowed to just yeah. refill even annually. And I've, I've heard that there are absolutely benefits of what's happening this winter for, for waterfowl, for infiltration, recharge of groundwater. Um, it, the issue is that in California, agriculture is an incredible high value uh, economy, and it just seems unrealistic that so much land is just going to be returned to natural state. So there are benefits. It just seems like it's not going to head in that direction. Yeah. yeah. Let's uh, go back to the phones. Let's go to uh, Margo in Berkeley. Welcome. Oh, hello. Hey, Margo. Welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. So um, let's see. I was wondering, I had a couple of questions related to the reservoirs. I'm curious about their role in protecting the state from flooding. Like how big of a piece are they and what is their kind of like ability to um, to safeguard against flooding in a year like this and then mm -hmm. if an assessment has been made of all of the infrastructure and if anything like the Oroville disaster is mm -hmm. you know, likely to happen again or if there's certain ones that have been flagged as mm -hmm. uh, you know 
dubious or in need of um, yeah. uh, repair. Repairs yeah. And then, and then, like with these like little canals that transfer water, starting at you know the mountains, um, and then travel along um, to I guess transport water for agricultural purposes. Mm-hmm. What are the likely impacts on those mm-hmm. and do mm-hmm. they play any role in minimizing risk? Yeah. Hey, Margo, great questions. Thank you so much. Uh, Nicholas Pinter, I mean, I think we know that the this system, particularly in the northern part of the state, was built both to capture water and move it south, but also for flood control. Yeah, so I checked the California reservoir numbers yesterday. So they were at something like 22.7 million acre feet of storage, 77% of capacity. And part of the reason that number is not higher is uh, reservoir managers are keeping the levels down to anticipate storage for flood control purposes in the future. Yeah. And the one question I've gotten throughout this winter most consistently is what the, the, the earlier caller mentioned, calls to capture more of this of this runoff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like Haley mentioned, uh, I, I believe, I suspect that the era of big dam building in California is over. That's not the solution, but there's there's interesting new ideas and rapid progress. California really at the forefront of managed aquifer recharge. There's there's room for improvement there. And I'll just mention, you know, I'm a I'm a river scientist, and it's not entirely alarming or surprising to me that once in a while, every decade or two, our California rivers might actually flow back to the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, Haley Smith, can we talk a little bit about the river flows at the moment? Um, I, I was, I, I guess, a little surprised at least to find that, you know, like the Merced River is already being closed to, to recreation. Yeah, well, so a lot of this is connected. Um, so the Merced is an interesting example because that's sort of a direct response to the to the snowmelt, and it and they closed a portion of Yosemite this weekend in anticipation of that river overtopping. Although it didn't end up being quite as bad as the forecast said. But then downstream of these reservoirs and dams is where you're seeing direct impacts from the reservoir managers releasing water. So basically, it's like they're turning the taps on to let waters out of the dams to make room for snowmelt and incoming flows. But the downside of that is that it can put more pressure on the rivers and the creeks and the tributaries downstream of that reservoir. That And so that could potentially cause them to swell and overtop. And so it's sort of a lesser of two evils situation because while it's not great to see rivers swelling like that and potentially flooding, it's preferable to seeing a reservoir overflow, which would be basically an uncontrolled flood, um, sort of like what what almost happened at Oroville. So um, again, there it's it's a very delicate balance that the reservoir operators are having to strike this winter, and um, so those are those are sort of the options they're facing. Yeah. Um, no, different, but we have a uh, question from Sergio who tweets, you know, I'm curious to know when was the last time we upgraded our water infrastructure in California? And I want to just kind of build on that question a little bit, which is from your perspective as someone who's, you know, studying climate change, who's studying the, you know, the weather patterns that we may have in the future um, here in the state. Do you think the system that we currently have, our, our water infrastructure system of these reservoirs and moving water from north to south and all those things, do you think this 
makes sense for us to continue with the system we have to say nothing of building new dams, but just to keep the ones we already have. Well, you know, we have a very sophisticated water infrastructure and management system and, and a set of, you know, water, you know, legal framework for, for water that goes back, you know, more than a hundred years and, and climate's changed uh, quite a bit in California um, in that time. In fact, you know, the changes that we're experiencing now and that we can expect to intensify in the future, these, you know, were predicted three decades ago uh, or more, uh, you know, back in the 1980s, um, you know, with, with, you know, you know, based on, you know, clear understanding of, of the physics of the climate system and, and, and the hydrologic system. And it's exactly what, what we've been experiencing in terms of, um, you know, more, uh, larger fraction of precipitation falling as rain rather than snow, the snow that does fall melting earlier in the year, um, you know, hotter, uh, conditions during the summer, all of that, you know, increasing flood risk in the winter and increasing the the risk of of water deficits during the summer, and that's exactly what's playing out. And I think that uh, you know the the it's unfair to suggest that we aren't you know we in California as a state are not trying to um, adapt to that. I think uh, you know we we have been adapting in real time. It's a challenge uh, even to keep up with what we're experiencing. Uh, so, you know, we the the real challenge is how to leapfrog ahead to a solution that both, you know, provides resilience to what we're experiencing now and prepares for the future. And I think, you know, one of the key elements is what we've been talking about here in terms of our built infrastructure, where we have a system that relies on, you know, the same dams and reservoirs for both flood control and water storage. And so, in a in the context of a changing climate. You know, one uh, one area you know for adaptation and improved resilience is is to separate uh, flood control and water storage. And certainly, the groundwater recharge is uh, a, a great example of that. Uh, we are seeing around the state with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act lots of activities all around the state uh, as as districts are are working to come into compliance uh, with Sigma. That's one example we have. Um, you know the the climate safe uh, infrastructure effort in California. Uh, so I think there there is a lot of effort, and and we're seeing what a challenge uh, it is to adapt to a changing climate. We're talking about the big melt this morning, how prepared California is for this influx of water from the Sierra snowpack. Joined by Noah Diffenbaugh, professor and senior fellow at the Stanford University Door School of Sustainability. Research focuses on climate, earth system dynamics. Haley Smith is a reporter focusing on extreme weather with the L.A. Times. And Nicholas Pinter is the chair in applied geosciences in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and associate director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis. Would love your questions, taking them on how California's snowpack will melt this year, what kind of effects it could have on uh, humans and and other creatures. Um, We also know that some flood warnings may be impacting people's plans for outdoor recreation. Um, You can give us a call and tell us about that. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org is the email, and you can find us kqed forum on twitter facebook and instagram 
Um, you know, Haley, I wanted to ask you one question from a listener. Jeremy writes in to say, given all the farming that's done in these flooded areas and also the probable use of nitrates and pesticides, what's this mean for the quality and drinkability of the groundwater and other water that mixes with these flooded farms? That's an interesting question. And um, I think it's it's potentially related to the big melt, but it's also just a problem that we have to deal with across the state. The answer is there probably is some contamination in that groundwater and, and will continue to be. But if you're going to drink that water, um, certainly at any large public utility, it'll be it'll be treated before you drink it. Um, that said, there is an interesting element, especially in the Tulare area, because one, it's it's the, the lake bed there is made of this sort of Corcoran clay, um, which is actually, uh, unfortunately, doesn't really drain very well, which is part of why we're expecting the water that's already there to remain for at least a year or two. Mm. Um, so that's a factor. And there's also been a lot of land subsidence in that area. So basically, the ground in the Central Valley is mm -hmm. sinking as more groundwater is uh, sucked out and has been over the years. So um, that's also potentially making it even deeper and, and could take even longer to drain than it did back in the 80s. So huh. yeah, lots of factors here. Um, I do think we will probably see some some forms of contamination or, or chemicals entering the water because yeah. of this. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think it's worth saying too that, you know, as you noted at, you know, big urban um, utility districts, the water quality is maintained in all these different ways. But there are hundreds of communities around the state, particularly farm worker communities, that really are struggling to provide clean and safe drinking water. And mm -hmm. there really hasn't been an answer, even before this, um, for a lot of those a lot of those communities. It's kind of going one by one doing that work. So um, thank you for that question. Really appreciate it. We are talking about the Big Melt with Stanford's Noah Diffabaugh. LA Times, Haley Smith, and UC Davis's Nicholas Pinter. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll get to more of your calls and comments after the break. Do you live in an area where you're worried about flooding? We'd love to hear how you're feeling. Again, the number's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the big melt. That is when this close to record uh, snowpack in the Sierras uh, comes down into the rest of California and how prepared we are to deal with that. 
We're joined by Nicholas Pinter, Chair in Applied Geosciences in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and Associate Director for the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis. Haley Smith, a reporter focusing on extreme weather with the Los Angeles Times. And Noah Diffenbaugh, professor and senior fellow at the Stanford University's Dora School of Sustainability. We're getting um, a bunch of different questions, and I, I think I want to come to you on this, Nicholas, about how to replenish groundwater the best. So Stephen asks, you know, what can be done to maximize the replenishment of groundwater in California during the big melt? You, know, you mentioned there's different types of uh, scientific inquiry into how best to do this. Yeah, so I, I think I'll venture to say California is taking the lead on this area, managed aquifer recharge, some people call it, in part because there's the greatest need here. We, we use over years, use our groundwater so intensely during the dry years there's this intense need to replenish some of it during the rare wet winter where we when we get the opportunity. So um, there's uh, there's particular uh, locations people are targeting. One of the things we've learned is you can't just let the water sit there and expect it to get into the subsurface. As Haley mentioned, some places just don't do that very well. You have to target those efforts where the uh, surface, near surface, and subsurface conditions allow it. There's really interesting projects. So right now working with UC Santa Cruz, a project to set back levees on the Pajaro River, including where they broke this year. This would be a really logical time, not just rebuild these things in place, but use this opportunity, a silver lining of the disaster there um, to get uh, recharge benefits, to increase the flood resilience of that system, that community. Um, so there are some solutions here to multiple different problems. Yeah. You know, and we do have other examples of those things around the state, too, right? Like up uh, on the north side uh, of the Delta, right, there have been some of these setbacks. Um, and it seems like it's it has been able to deliver the benefits that people hoped. Yeah, there's good examples. So uh, in my backyard here, the Kasumnis River, they did large scale floodplain reconnection, levee setback projects in the 80s and 90s that are reaping their their benefits right now. So there are things we can do. Uh, again, lots of talk about build more dams and reservoirs. Um, that's not where things are going. So for example, we passed Proposition 1 in 2014 that allocated $2.6 billion for additional water storage. There's really only one of those projects is talking about a new dam, and it's not clear that's going to go all the way to fruition, but lots of opportunities to enlarge, expand the capacity of existing facilities and explore these innovative other solutions. You know, Noah, there's an interesting question, and you know, this has come up with just people around my house over time. Um, a listener writes, can consumers help recharge groundwater when we're dumping water, like can we run sprinklers now to help recharge the water table while water agencies are dumping water to make room for snow melt? It's my understanding that's not exactly how it would work, right? Um, yeah, I think you're right. Um, so, you know, certainly residential water use is a, is a big uh, source of water consumption in California. And, you know, where I think... Um, you know, residences still have, uh, you know, uh, uh, the potential to to really help with the situation in terms of overall water consumption is certainly, you know, 
in residential irrigation. Um, and we saw in the last drought in Southern California, a really ambitious um, lawn buyback program. You know, it was a, a big investment. You know, uh, Haley can correct me if I've got the numbers wrong, but, you know, I, I think around $350 million invested to, um, you know, in that program. And, and, you know, it was very successful and ended up reducing residential consumption on the order of 50%. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the challenges in California is that, um, you know, we've we've had big population growth. Uh, we've also had big increases in water efficiency. So, you know, from the 1976-77 drought up until now, population's about doubled or so in California, and our, you know, overall residential water use is pretty similar. So we've about doubled efficiency. Uh, that also means there's less slack in the system in terms of residential use. But in particular, you know, we have a lot of residential irrigation that, you know, is certainly going to making uh, nice landscaping, but uh, still does use quite a bit of water. Yeah, yeah. And I think, Nicholas Pinter, just to, you know, uh, make the point uh, even more finely, it's kind of like you're not recharging Central Valley groundwater by, like, running your sprinklers in the East Bay. You're you're not. Yeah. And it's not clear that even me here in the Central Valley is doing anything, um, maybe anything at all to, to improve that situation, although large-scale agricultural use, right? So that sometimes it's a little bit paradoxical. Like uh, we talk about uh, uh high efficiency drip irrigation as a solution to uh to California's water crisis, but oftentimes those farmers are using the same amount of water. Um parsing it out to the individual plants, and it's not going in to recharge the groundwater as more primitive flood irrigation used to. So it's it's complex. Hmm. Let's go back to the phone here. Let's go to uh, Charles in Berkeley. Welcome. Yes, good morning. I um, work with uh, Indian tribes in the Central Valley, and one of them in the shadow of Orville Dam and the other one down in Madeira. So I'm certainly aware of all the water shortage and, and surplus issues. But actually, the thing that drove me recently to get FEMA flood insurance was living in, in Berkeley. Hmm. Um, about 10 years ago, there was an issue of the antiquated um, storm drainage systems, and there was talk about having to float a bond, and it was somewhere in excess of $50 million, and it just disappeared. The issue just disappeared. But, but I think the issue actually stays there, literally subterranean. And um, you know, it motivated me recently to say, well, with all these atmospheric water um, uh, storms and everything, I should probably get um, supplemental flood insurance for my home in Berkeley because I'm yeah. quite near a stream. So just a, ca a question about whether that's uh, on the radar screen um, yeah. for municipalities um, in, in urban areas, not in traditional floodplain areas. Hey, thank you, Charles. I mean, Haley, I think I might uh, send this one over to you. Like, how do you see you know, it, it, given that your beat is extreme weather, municipalities adapting to some of these new conditions or, you know, individual people going out and changing their insurance coverage? Sure. I mean, and this is something we've already touched on in this conversation. We have in many places 20th century infrastructure in an in a 21st century climate. And so a lot of the systems that we're working with were built over a hundred years ago and just are not adequate for dealing with the extreme 
weather that we're seeing. And that's both extreme drought and extreme moisture, um, which we call kind of, we call it weather whiplash, these sort of swings um, driven by climate change. So I know here in Los Angeles, for example, during the storms this winter, there was a lot of conversation about our stormwater capture and how much of that water was essentially ending up in the ocean, which was really frustrating for residents to see after three years of being in an extreme drought and having to deal with um, severe water restrictions. So I think there are a lot of efforts underway to improve our ability to capture that stormwater and also to allow it more opportunities to percolate into the ground as we've talked about. But unfortunately, the time frame for a lot of these projects is like 30 to 40 years, and we don't necessarily have that kind of time. So I understand the community's frustrations. I also think I don't envy the state and regional water managers. They're having to plan for drought and flooding a lot of the times at the same time. So it is challenging. Um, I think there are efforts underway, and, and there's certainly a lot more we could do. Nicholas, you know, you're you're a river scientist, and I assume that when you hear about, you know, water from our rivers ending up in the ocean, that's not always a bad thing, right? I mean, that the, the rivers, in fact, need to run high sometimes for their own health. Right. So rivers are part of the hydrologic, ecological cycle that drives a wide range of different processes. And so, again, it's not entirely a surprise that once in a while— a river does what a river does, and that's reach the ocean for habitat benefits for fish, for birds, and some of those people in LA should remember. You know, the, the primary source for for sand on their beaches is sediment flushing down the rivers occasionally when there's water to make that happen. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, Tulare Lake has really captured people's. Uh, imagination in the in the comments. I mean, you know, one listener writes in to say, is it realistic to make the Tulare Basin deeper and smaller? Robert writes in to say, in this era of responding to mistakes we've made in the past with the goal of inviting avoiding climate disaster, huge sacrifices will need to be made. The fact that we mistakenly developed the Tulare Lake area doesn't mean in the recent geologic past does not justify repeating the mistake in the face of reality. Time for us to stop magical thinking regarding how we utilize resources. People need to move out, farms and towns. Um, you know, this is a really difficult question, though, Haley, right? I mean, I'm assuming that, mo you know, we, you talked a little bit about the you know farmer who was considering doing something different, but people in the towns there, that's where they live, right? It is where they live, and... It uh, to me, being there the other day, it, it sort of makes me think about the wildfire problem that we have in California. Mm. And like, if your home burns down in a wildfire, do you want to rebuild it? And what sort of future risk are you putting yourself at by rebuilding it? So there is, to me at least, a little bit of this element here. This place keeps flooding, and then we keep planting new things and putting more people there. Um, so there is a little bit of like, does this make sense? But that yeah. said... That's what it's one thing to think about that as a hypothetical situation. It's another when that's your home and your community and your neighbors and your family and your your living in a lot of instances. Um, so it's hard. It's hard. It's people, as that commenter said, people are going to have to make some difficult choices in the future. Um, so yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, it also feels like people really. It takes a while for people to actually reckon with the possibility that they might have to leave. You know, I mean, that seemed to be one of the things in the, the fire case that you mentioned. It's a great analogy. Um, mm -hmm. 
Today is the first day of our our spring pledge drive. We have many new thank you gifts, but the reason to support us is because you use and appreciate the service we provide. So become a sustaining member at kqed.org slash donate. That's kqed.org slash donate. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Let's uh, continue on this, uh, the theme around Tulare Lake and kind of changes. Um, Hannah in Berkeley, welcome to the show. Hi, um, I'm, I'm an ecologist at a consulting firm in Berkeley, and we do a lot of work around wetland stuff. So I've been thinking about this a lot in the Central Valley um, with flooding and stuff. But my question is, um, I was listening on my drive here, you guys were talking about 1983 being a big flood year, and then you also mentioned Orville, um, that flood year in like 2015, 2016, whenever that was. Um, I'm curious if either of those or if there's another historical precedent. I'm wondering if there's a historical precedent for this kind of flooding um, and what was done about it. Like, were there more levees built? Were there dams built? Um, were people evacuated? Was that land just kind of given up to the lake? Um, and I'm curious about that historical precedent and how it can be applied mm-hmm. to um, this situation. Yeah. Hannah, thank you uh, so much. Uh, Nicholas, you rattled off a few different years that might be um, good good precedents for you know what we're going through now. Well, the caller mentioned Oroville, and I sat here in Davis in the same chair in February of 2017 and listened to the radio, our, our NPR station, talk about uh, the imminent warning coming off of Oroville. It was, this is not a drill, this is not a drill, this is not a drill. And so that's, that's the big kind of uh, real warning that people need to stay awake for and that there is still the potential for that on some of the rivers this year. Uh, what happened in the wake of that? There was a massive billion dollar plus investment in the Oroville spillway to get it back to where it should have been in the first place. Uh, in other places, we'll see what happens. For example, Tulare Lake, there's other places around the country. For example, about two dozen communities across the U.S. that in the aftermath of major flooding decided to pull up roots and rebuild their towns elsewhere. So mm-hmm. places like these small towns down in in Tulare will, will have to face these kind of decisions, rebuild in place, or undertake some sort of transformative change. Yeah. You know, um, let's let's stick with you. A few different listeners have been writing in to ask about other lakes. You know, what about other lakes such as Mono Lake or Owens Lake? How will all this water affect these sort of other uh, lake bodies? Yeah, so those other lakes have outlets, right? So, so Mono Lake ends up, believe it or not, in Los Angeles. Uh, in large part. So so the the news this winter is mostly good. So after several years of drought, here we are with a wet winter that has significantly refilled our, our reservoirs, um, sort of turned the needle on drought, but certainly not ended drought in California once and for all. I was getting the, these, these calls coming out of the Grand Canyon about three weeks ago, record snowpack in California, uh, my students and I rafted three weeks on the Grand Canyon uh, at near record low flows down there. So you cannot really solve California's water problems once and for all when our reach for water is so large and the deficits in many places are such longstanding problems. Yeah. You know, Noah, we know we may be going, right? Seems like we're going into an El Nino cycle, traditionally wetter. 
Could that mean several more years of uh, big snowpack and, and wet years? And what would that mean for the state's water system? Yeah, I guess it's a good question. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, if, if for this on these timescales, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the the real climate system. So, it, you know, the future is hard to predict uh, on these timescales. You know, I think if you if you could only have one piece of information, you would ask, please tell me whether it's El Nino or La Nina. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that guarantees an outcome. And certainly, you know, California stretches across a really, you know, the transition between wet and dry in the um, kind of what we call canonical uh, El Nino teleconnection. That's a lot of jargon, but basically what we can expect from precipitation in an El Nino year, really California is right at the, at the margin. Uh, so, you know, it's an area where there's a lot of research and, and we, really shouldn't rely on El Nino as uh, any kind of guarantee of a prediction or of wet or dry. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the two years that we've talked about quite a bit in this conversation, 82, 83, and, uh, you know, that ni uh, you know, 97, 98, and then the 2016, 2017, so that's three years, you know, those were all, uh, you know, we, we had a strong El Nino um, response and very wet conditions, but uh, you know, this year was a bit different. So I think, um, you know, certainly if we look at the historical averages, we might expect uh, that the odds are tipped a bit for um, some continued wet winters here um, if we get a strong El Nino. But I think we've really seen those um, those patterns uh, not be a reliable indicator huh. for California statewide. Thank you so much. We've been talking about the big melt, the snowpack in California's water uh, situation going into the summer. We've been joined by Noah Diffenbaugh, professor at Stanford University's Door School of Sustainability, Haley Smith, a reporter focusing on extreme weather with the LA Times, and Nicholas Pinter of the University of California, Davis. Thank you all so much for sharing your expertise. This Hour of Form is produced by Blanca Torres, Jennifer Eng, and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Christopher Beal, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Big thank you for last week to the Youth Takeover Program Manager, Amanda Behil, and KQD's Youth Advisory Board. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour of Form Ahead with me to Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.